Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, um, Josh Malcolm Clark. There's Charles Wayne Bryant. <laughs> this is stuff you should know about Cabbage Patch Kids, who have two names, which is why I just did that. That's right. This uh, remarkably the third time we've talked about Cabbage Patch Kids on this show. I only remember one other time. When was the th- when was the third time or the the second time? I guess. Well, the last time was uh, not even a year ago um, mm-hmm. on our on our episode on must have Christmas gifts, and then yeah, that's wh- all I remember. Yeah, and then while I was uh, telling the story mm-hmm. of my Cabbage Patch Kid experience, he said, mm-hmm. "Yes, you've told everyone this story before, so I think this will be the third time that we hear these stories." I thought you didn't have a Cabbage Patch Kid. So you don't remember the other two times I told the story. That's, no, you got to tell right. it again. It's called a it's called a hat trick, baby. Uh, yeah, he, uh, my sister has one of the the first like seventy five of them uh, of the little people dolls. Oh wow! That she bought in I, North okay. Georgia when she was a kid. Now I uh, now I know why uh, it didn't stick with me because I didn't understand what the heck you were talking about. Now I totally get it, and I think it will stay with me forever, Chuck. When we do our fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, podcasts on Cabbage Patch Kids, I will be the one telling that story. How about that? Uh, well, and you also told the story of yours that you uh, uh, ripped the head off and gave it a mohawk. <laughs> yeah. For yours. Weber Dino met a, a pretty a terrible demise. And I have two of them myself that my mom every once in a while says, hey, do you want these? And I say, no, I don't. <laughs> I uh, don't think they're worth much money, and I, I don't know even know if my sister's is worth a lot of money now, even though it's hand-signed and one of the first ones. I just – I don't think the market is as uh, robust as it was at, at one point. So was hers a Coleco Little People or as Xavier Roberts, like, original Appalachian Artworks um, Little People? No, hers was one of the handmade – Xavier Roberts uh, OG craft fair dolls. I I I think those go for like one two maybe up up two thousand dollars. I think. Yeah, just I guess it depends on where you look. Like I saw the one that of mine that was one of those originals, and it wasn't one of the first one hundred. But people are asking like one hundred and fifty bucks on eBay for those. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm surprised to see that. Like from what I've seen, if like if if you really want the big bucks, it's the the original Xavier Roberts Little People. But um, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because some people are probably like, "What's a Cabbage Patch Kid?" <laughs> right? Right. So, well, we'll tell everybody what a Cabbage Patch Kid is. It's a little doll that um, was a huge, huge deal. In the Christmas of 1983, and like Chuck said, we talked about this on, um, I guess it was our, I think it was our Christmas episode, or was it a a different standalone um, episode from last year? No, I think the first time we did it was a Christmas episode, and then last year it was in November. It was just must-have Christmas toys. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so that's worth listening to. But um, in in December of 1983, Christmas of 1983, everybody was going crazy for these dolls. But at the same time, there was like because it was such a huge craze, and they they were so a part of like popular culture at the moment. They were on the news every night. Um, people were doing just absolutely crazy things to get their hands on these these dolls for their kids. There was a lot of talk about well, what 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 are these things? They're so ugly that they're cute. And other people thought, well, no, they're actually just ugly. Um, there's a, 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 art, a journal article that came out in 1986 in the Semantics Journal, etc. Um, and the uh, Cabbage Patch Kids were described as open-armed and eyed, seemingly dull-witted, with mop-haired faces only mothers could love, which I think is pretty, pretty, it's a pretty accurate description of a Cabbage Patch Kid, don't you think? Yeah, so uh, on that, there was, and this is something I never knew, apparently there was a rumor uh, years after the fact that um, the design was um, managed by Ronald Reagan because he (laughs) wanted to get Americans used to what um, mutant offspring might look like if we ever go to, if the big one ever drops and we go to war with the Ruskies, um, Mm -hmm. we might want to get used to our babies looking like this. So let's just, it's sort of in the classic Hollywood like, you know, there are theories that that's why we make UFO movies. They're commissioned by the government to get people sort of adjusted to the idea that one day there's going to be aliens walking around. Right, exactly. Um, but that's probably not the case. Ronald Reagan probably didn't have anything to do with it. But that's just such an 80s thing. Cabbage Patch Kids, Ronald Reagan, and nuclear war with the USSR. That's about like the greatest 80s combination I've ever heard of in my life. Yeah, pretty good. So um, if you go on to the Cabbage Patch Kids website, you'll find the um, enchanting magical story of where Cabbage Patch Kids came from or how they came into our human world. And it goes something like um, this, that when he was a a young boy, Xavier Roberts uh, was wandering around the Appalachian Mountains and he saw what uh, is called a bunny bee which is a magical bee that, or magical bunny that can fly around, like buzzes around like a bee. And he followed it, and the bunny bee went through a waterfall. And Xavier Roberts went and looked and saw that behind the waterfall there was a tunnel. And he went into the tunnel, being an inquisitive type of Appalachian young boy. Um, And when he came out on the other side of the tunnel, he was clearly in some sort of enchanted land because there were a bunch of bunny bees flying around over a cabbage patch, sprinkling some sort of magical dust. And Xavier noticed that when the dust hit the cabbage, the cabbage would start to move and a little baby would be born from it, a cabbage patch kid. And one of those kids, a kid named Otis Lee, came up to Xavier and said, hey, 
Will you take me and all of my friends over to your human world and help us find homes? And so Xavier Roberts agreed, and he founded Babyland General Hospital for the purpose of adopting out Cabbage Patch Kids, and that's where it all came from. That's right. Uh, Babyland General uh, right here in Cleveland, Georgia, and I just so happened to have driven by there uh, but two days ago. I uh, went up. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we went on a, a waterfall hike. The family did on Sunday. and Did you see a bunny bee? We didn't see a bunny bee, but we drove right by Babyland General, and Emily was like, did you know that mm-hmm. was there? I was like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so, of course, I knew it was there. But uh, that's where Xavier Roberts went to college. He went to college at Truett McConnell there in Cleveland, so that was the connection. Right, right. Yeah, if you want to kind of take it down a notch as far as magical enchantment goes, the, the official story is that um, Xavier Roberts, while he was at Truett McConnell, um, while he was studying art there, he came across a German fabric sculpture technique from the 19th century called needle molding. And um, if you've ever seen, you know that, that really famous tomato pincushion, Chuck, from the 70s? Mm-hmm. So you know how how like the top the creases in the top of the tomato are made by like like taut thread pulled through together to kind of create that that molded look mm-hmm. that from what I can tell is is a form of needle molding but somehow Xavier Roberts was like I really like sculpture and this is a form of soft sculpture I also like quilting and this kind of has to do with quilting I'm going to get into this and we're going to figure out how to make baby dolls using this needle molding technique and he did just that starting in 1977 yeah and uh, for those of you that want to throw your um, car into a ditch right now because <laughs> you're screaming about the story um, yeah. because you know the true story. Just put a pin in it. We're going to get around to it. That was very merciful of you, Chuck. Yeah, I didn't want people to to think that we didn't know. Um, but in 1977, uh, Xavier Roberts, uh, who sort of looked like a sort of like a shorter haired Kenny Rogers type, uh, wore a cowboy hat and had this beard, and um, he developed these. Uh, they were, like you said, soft sculpture, but they were dolls called Little People. And right. here was the sort of hitch that really drove kids wild is that they were not dolls that you buy. They were little people that you adopt. Mm-hmm. So you got adoption birth certificates. Um, it, was a, um, it was a brilliant idea that he had. <laughs> Put a pin in it. Right. And he, and he right. sold these things, Little People Originals. He had uh, – he went to arts and craft shows. He sold them. We bought ours at uh, Unicoi Lodge at Unicoi State Park in a gift shop there. So that was the kind of place that would carry this kind of stuff. Um, They were about $40, and I remember distinctly that my father could not imagine paying $40 for a doll. And uh, I think even – I think we even left without little Chuck, and he went back because he felt so bad about how crestfallen my sister was and bought the doll later (laughs) on for a Christmas gift or something, if my memory serves me. But it was a lot of money. Uh, Forty bucks was a lot of money for a doll back then. Yeah, it was probably getting pretty close to a hundred bucks. And I mean, who goes to Unicoi State Park's gift shop and expects to drop a hundred bucks on a piece of folk art that's really just a baby doll? You know, I could kind of see your dad's... He thought he was going to have to get a, a Michelle miniature license plate for two fifty. Sure, exactly. And when you go on with an expectation like that, and you are faced with a hundred dollar uh, soft sculpture 
um, payment that you have to make, that's a big shock. And sometimes somebody needs to get in their car and drive home and think about it before they can accept that. That's right. So, um, that, like you said, that's exactly the kind of place you would have bought this. You could have also found them at like craft fairs or something. And in fact, um, uh, Xavier Roberts won first place at the Osceola Art Show in Kissimmee, Florida, um, for, uh, little people that he named Dexter, which is one of the most uncanny, haunting, horrid dolls you'll ever see in your life. Um, but it helped kind of generate some buzz. And at that point, he was like, you know what, this is, things are kind of going well. People are paying 40 bucks for, for um, to adopt one of these little people. I'm winning first place prizes. I'm going to get together some friends. And he uh, founded what's known as Original Appalachian Artworks. Um, and they they are the ones that actually opened up Babyland General. They took a, an old medical center in Cleveland, which is super creepy, um, that they 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 took an abandoned hospital and opened it at, for, it's basically like a doll store. Really creepy if you step back and just look at the contours of the whole thing. Um, but it, it was a smash hit. No, no, it didn't. I'm just saying if you just look at the words on paper oh, and sure. you put it like that, it does seem yeah, creepy. Yeah, when, when you but think no, hospital, it was, it was like a little house. It was, And it was the opposite of creepy. Like, it was delightful. And I guess it still is because, I mean, it's still in operation today. But people would show up and, like, there were, like, the, the people who worked there were dressed up as nurses and doctors. And, and they would help the, uh, the the babies be born from cabbage, um, from cabbages. Uh, then they would be incubated. There were preemies that were born. Like, it was a big deal operation to take this this idea of that uh, you were adopting a, a Cabbage Patch Kid rather than buying a doll and then, like, adding that whole extra dimension to it of going to Babyland General to do it really helped generate a lot of buzz for, for these things. Yeah, and I should say that my sister's doll, Chuck, who was – they come with their name. She didn't name it after me. But uh, Chuck had um, – <laughs> you know, if you see the the early versions of these things, like you said, it was kind of horrific looking. They They weren't the cutest dolls at all. Chuck had a very crooked – hairline um like it looked mm-hmm. like it was made by someone who didn't fully know what they were doing his little yarn hairline <laughs> was like a good three inches higher on one side of his forehead than the other which oh my again further my dad did not see the charm in this he was like it's not even made well and i got to pay 40 dollars for these things but um supposedly with the preemies uh xavier roberts has given some credit to just raising awareness for premature babies because uh, the preemies um, in Cabbage Patch Land were so cute. Uh, they also had C-sections, cabbage sections. And uh, by the time <laughs> 1980 rolls around, he's selling a pretty good amount of these things. But it really explodes uh, in popular culture from sort of the early 80s. He was uh, featured on the TV show Real People, um, which I watched a lot as a kid. Uh, made Newsweek, yeah. uh, made the Wall Street Journal. And so the press is starting to kind of come around and these things are just getting more and more popular at this point. Yeah, a lot of those stories just kind of focused on um, people who were paying a lot more than the original retail price to start collecting these dolls. So there was like a whole underground cult market that was developing around these little people. Um, and it became very apparent that Xavier Roberts was not going to be able to keep up with supply. So he started looking for some help and he found it in 1982. And we will talk all about that partnership made in heaven starting after these messages. (laughs) 
Okay, Chuck, so uh, it's 1982, and the little people are just going bonkers. They're flying off of shelves. They can't keep them in stock anywhere they're selling them. Unicoi State Park is on the phone every day being like, send us more, send us more. We don't care what the hairline looks like. We got to have them. And um, so Xavier Roberts started looking for some, like a, a, a legit toy manufacturer to help him out. And he found it in Coleco, who had made a name, I guess, around the same time as maybe a little bit before this, year before maybe, as the people who um, came out with Pac-Man. So they were riding high by this time, and they said, I think there's something to this, these little people, and we're going we're gonna to buy in here. And so um, Xavier Roberts partnered with Coleco, and the, the rest of the story just kind of takes off like a rocket from there. Yeah, so this was in 1982, and uh, at, at first Coleco said, you know what, we're going to keep calling them little people. Uh, we think that's a, a good name, even though it wasn't. Uh, so they stuck with the name. Uh, they figured out the best way to mass produce these things um, was to get rid of that hand done, hand sewn head. Uh, that was a real problem. That's what took the most time. Um, sure. It's also, uh, frankly, what gave those early dolls all the personality. Um, a lot of that was lost when they went to the the plastic heads, but they did keep the uh, cloth bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. They machine produced these vinyl heads. They sized the doll down a little bit to about 16 inches. Um, the initial dolls were pretty big. Um, they varied in size, obviously, depending on how old um, they were when you adopted them. But um, they they were large. Like Chuck was a big doll. The two I have are big dolls. Yeah, they were like the size where if they were possessed by a demon and came alive, they could smother you. Like they, you'd be in big trouble if they came alive while you were asleep. Yes, big time. Uh, but sizing them down made a big difference because then you could just box them up, get more shelf space that way. Sure. And they were smart early on, too, to realize that kids wanted a lot of uh, variety. Um, they wanted different uh, ethnicities. They wanted different skin color, different shapes. They wanted some with freckles, some with dimples, um, obviously different eye color and hair color and stuff like that. And that mm-hmm. was one of the big selling points is it wasn't just this – um, Samesies mass-produced doll that that right. every kid could have the same one. Every kid wanted a different version. Yeah, because I mean that was the part of the whole marketing that you were adopting your own individual kid, your own Cabbage Patch kid who had his or her own name, his or her own like specific birth date. Um, he or she was a unique little baby that you were adopting. So um, the idea that you could take different head molds and different facial features and different types of hair, and you had like a few different from each category, you suddenly had like millions of combinations that you could randomly put together. It continued that uniqueness that was like part of the brand from the beginning. And like you said, was like part of like the big, the big thing that like made this craze so, so huge, you know? They were very smart to, to identify that as a big part of the marketing and then figure out a way to carry it on while also mass producing these things. It was pretty clever on Coleco's part. Yeah, and it was also clever to change the name. Um, little people yeah. uh, just didn't have legs, basically, in the end. And they thought Cabbage Patch Kids, they were born in the Cabbage Patch. It's, um, and, you know, looking back, it's it's a pretty brilliant name. Uh, because it ties into being adopted, uh, being born in the little cabbage patch, and um, it's it, it was pretty brilliant. I think um, it, it was the kind of name like 
that you could end up making into a bunch of other things, which they did, and we're going to talk about that. But I don't think little people quite sure. had the legs to do that. So um, Coleco also figured out that there was a, a really good sweet spot that even if you couldn't really afford it, you would still stretch to reach that point. And they started adopting these. The adoption fees for Cabbage Patch Kids came to about $30, which is $78 in today's money. Um, and then they they took their, um, you know, comparatively much larger clout um, and contacts in the media and started getting way more press for Cabbage Patch Kids than Xavier Roberts ever managed to, to generate for little people. Oh, sure. Which I have to say, looking looking back, though, Xavier Roberts did some really good work as just some dude from Cleveland, Georgia, who was hand-sewing dolls. I mean, he got some pretty good coverage. Yeah, I mean, that, that should have been very niche and regional. Right, exactly, and it wasn't. It became a big deal. But Coleco just put it to shame. They they um they got a lot of press, a lot of um, interest drummed up for Cabbage Patch Kids, and all of that kind of culminated in a December twelfth, um, uh, nineteen eighty three edition of Newsweek when there was a, a Cabbage Patch a little girl with her Cabbage Patch Kid on the cover of that edition, just in time for the Christmas buying season. That's right, because every kid in America was reading Newsweek and saying, Mom, Dad, look, it's on the cover. Right. We have to get one. Yep. And that was at the very quaint time when, when you would um, you would just start Christmas shopping two weeks before Christmas rather than right. eight months before <laughs> Christmas. Uh, so Coleco, and by the way, just to save listener mails, uh, Coleco did not make Pac-Man. I just want to save you from that fate. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think it was Namco, if I remember correctly. Oh, man. I mean, they did do video games, but... Okay, well, thanks for saving me. No, no, no. There'll be plenty huh. of uh, people that write that probably sent the email before I even got to this <laughs> and that want to retract the email, but uh, that's okay. So they started selling these things like hotcakes. Uh, they sold um, $3 million plus by the end of 1983, and like so many uh, Christmas items... That came before and after. It is sort of the frenzy is determined by availability and and supply. And they were underprepared, mm-hmm. and they could not keep up with demand. Uh, they weren't like uh, the Rubik's cube where they just made you know millions and millions and millions of these things. Uh, and it became a supply problem, and it became a really big deal. And this is uh, this is the first toy where people were angry because there weren't enough of them to go around. Yeah, and I mean, they still made three million of them, and they ran out like very quickly. And and when you say people were angry, like they were throwing elbows, they were um, pushing one another, they were like get, they were getting physical trying to get these dolls. And now it's like, well, yeah, that sounds like a a Christmas like must have Christmas toy. People hadn't done that up to this point. This is very new. And so in addition to, you know, the normal press they were getting, these dolls were also ending up on, like, the nightly news a lot that December with stories about how parents were, like, driving across state lines to get uh, one of those Cabbage Patch Kids. Or there was a a story about a a post uh, carrier in Kansas City, I think, who flew to London to buy one, which I don't understand why, because London had its own frenzy going on as well. Um, There was a whole lot of stuff going down that hadn't really gone down before uh, Cabbage Patch Kids came along that Christmas. Yeah, I wonder if that became a technique to sell more things was to either uh, 
falsely um, kind of falsely say that you don't have enough. I think we covered that in the must-have toys episode. That that is that is a technique that they use. That they pur- they purposefully underproduce to to create scarcity. Yeah, but then you can't sell as many. I would think it'd be better to produce the regular amount and then just say you didn't. And then they're like, but we found an, a warehouse that we didn't know about. <laughs> right, exactly. Because you still want to move these dolls. <laughs> I mean, Rubik's Cube, they sold 200 million Rubik's Cubes in the first few years. I know, that's nuts. Because they were that's just pumping nuts. those things out. Yeah, well, at, at the very least, I think Coleco was genuinely caught underprepared. I don't think it was a in any way, shape, or form a purposeful oh, no, of course uh, not. scarcity. I think it was just straight-up scarcity. Um and there was there was there's this footage from uh, uh, Zales Depart or no sorry Zayer Department Store mm, Zales. in Wilkesbury Pennsylvania, <laughs> right? This is in Wilkesbury Wilkesbury Pennsylvania or Wilkesbury. I've also seen Pennsylvania, um, but there's this manager who I know we talked about before. But you got to see this guy. He's the manager of the Zare Department Store um, in December of 1983, at least. And this guy is like unhinged. Have you seen footage of him? Yeah, we I saw him last year. <laughs> okay, you got to see him again. I got to describe him again because I, I he struck a chord with me this year that he didn't last year. But he's, he's holding a baseball bat, very famously. But if you listen to what he's doing, he's shouting at the customers. He's like, shut up, listen to me. And he's like waving this baseball bat. And there's this crowd of people filling every available inch of this, de- this department store wanting Cabbage Patch Kids. And this guy decides that the way to satisfy the need is to just start tossing them into the crowd. So the crowd is like jostling, going crazy, trying to catch these Cabbage Patch Kids while the manager of the department store is screaming at them holding a baseball bat. It's one of the worst forms of crowd management anyone's ever attempted, ever. And it was caught on film, and you got to see it yourself. Yeah, he was, uh, uh, he wasn't doing his best work that day. <laughs> That's, we can all agree <laughs> he on that. He really wasn't. Um, agreed. A lot of times the, the, um, the problems were so big that they didn't even want people in the stores. So they would say, like, we can't have a, another fistfight in here. So what you do is you can arrive and get a coupon, and then you go around back to the loading dock, and we'll distribute them there. Um, the secondary market started booming. Uh, there were actual stores that were buying them up and then marking them up. And then there was the black market that really, really marked them up. Um, right. And this was not WKRP in Cincinnati, but it was uh, very much in that rich tradition of of DJs um, kind of conning people into acting like fools. And this happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when um, some local DJs there said there's going to be a B-26 bomber plane, and it's going to drop 2,000 <laughs> dolls over the Brewers baseball stadium. And all you got to do is show up with your baseball glove to catch these babies <laughs> and hold up your credit card so the pilot can take a picture and charge you for it. And, of course, this is the dumbest thing you've ever heard, but that still didn't stop. Yeah. Uh, a couple of dozen people from showing up with their baseball glove and credit card. Yeah, and negative seven-degree wind chill, which is very cold if you're in the centigrade parts of the world. That's very cold. Um, They're used to it. <laughs> right, I guess so. Um, but the, the, 
yeah, the fact that people would would do that is it's like I, I double checked to make sure that that wasn't an urban legend, and it definitely is not. Like that was that really did happen in Milwaukee in 1983. That was like the the level the craze reached. Um, and what's really to Coleco's credit is they managed to keep the party going for a full another year because in Christmas 1984, Cabbage Patch uh, Kids were again the must-have toy, and in just 1984 alone. Not 1983 Christmas season, 1984 that year, they sold $2 billion worth of Cabbage Patch Kids in 1984 money. Yeah, I mean, this was, I think, one of the things that made it truly unique is, uh, like I said, the Rubik's Cube was really hot for a few years. But generally, as these things go, it's sort of like you can count on the one Christmas season. If you're overlapping to the next Christmas season, that is a Grand Slam home run as far as toys go. Absolutely. So one of the one of the outcomes of that of of being a toy that manages manages to span two Christmas seasons that that thoroughly um, is they become you know iconic uh, and they start popping up in other places like um, there was one named Christopher Xavier who's a very famous Cabbage Patch Kid I guess as as Cabbage Patch Kids can be famous um, and he actually rode on the space shuttle. Uh, on a on a genuine legit NASA space shuttle mission in 1985, um, and that reminds me, Chuck, have you seen the the mini doc about um, about the Challenger? No, not yet. Is it good? Uh, oh boy, it is really good. I mean, it's a it's a high high caliber documentary to begin with, but then like the the emotionality that it manages to, to sure. dredge up is really it's a really well done documentary in every every way. I highly recommend it. Where's that uh, showing? That one's on uh, Netflix, I believe. I'm almost positive, and I think it's just called Challenger, and then probably colon something. But um, it's good. It was. It's by uh, I think JJ isn't Bad Robot JJ Abrams Production Company. Yeah, they did it. They were one of the companies that that handled it. But it was. It's very good. I did watch uh, Enola Holmes on your recommendation. Yes. What'd you think? I liked it a lot. It was good. It was just a good breezy light fun movie to watch which is just what we needed the night we watched it. it for sure and and but it was smart too wasn't it yeah it was it was smart enough and she's just great millie bobby brown is uh she's just she's got a lot of personality and lovable charisma so she's she's great to watch and it's fun yeah. to see her outside of playing 11 uh, with all her personality able to come out like that right yeah. Well, I'm very glad that you liked it because I think we would have had some sort of awkward wedge between us for the rest <laughs> of our lives. Had you, not. you haven't seen the octopus doc yet? No? I did. Oh, okay. So I think if, if we're going to talk about octopus, uh, my octopus teacher, you should just turn down your volume for about a minute and uh, you won't have it spoiled. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. And actually, I think that guy is terrible. I think he's a terrible human being for not rescuing his companion friend for... On two different occasions. Really? Yes. And I know that he's a documentarian, so they're not supposed to interfere. I've seen Drop Dead Gorgeous. I know the rules. But this is different. He crossed the line. He crossed boundaries when he became friends with that octopus. He stopped being a documentarian, started being its friend. And then he, as its friend, wasn't there for his friend when it was attacked, not once, but twice. And I really dislike that guy for that reason. Oh, interesting. Well, I don't concur, but I guess uh, that's part of the beauty of that movie. You can have different different takes. 
So, uh, but there's not a gulf between us, a wedge between us now, is there? I mean, did you hate the documentary? No, I, okay. I, I otherwise <laughs> thought it was amazing. All right, well, then there's no gulf. Amazing. It really was, really was great. Except for the that one thing, no. times two. All right, no wedge. Um, so let's see. Back to Cabbage Patch Kids. There was another kind of landmark they reached in 1992 when they became, I think maybe Christopher Xavier became the official mascot of the U.S. Olympic team and got to go to Barcelona with them. Yeah, I mean, this is, is pretty impressive. This is 10 plus years after these things were the hot ticket, you know, um, which mm-hmm, is crazy, mm-hmm. crazy time. Um, they were on a postage stamp. Um, eventually, of course, though, his star, well, not his star, there was more than Christopher Xavier, but their collective star was going to fade, uh, like all toys and all dolls. Uh, we've all seen Toy Story. We, knows what hap- we know what happens in the end. Um, yeah. <laughs> it never completely went away, though. They, you know, Coleco event- eventually was like, you know, we got to offload these guys. Uh, we're going to sell it. Uh, we're in the video game industry, like, big time. Um, and so we got a— uh, Have you heard of Pac-Man? <laughs> well, the video game industry starts tanking, so they're trying to, I guess, recoup some money on their investments. So they sell the Cabbage mm-hmm. Patch Kid license. Uh, and then, you know, this is not before trying a few things. They tried, like, talking Cabbage Patch Kids uh, and stuff like that. But eventually uh, they went bankrupt in the 80s, and the license right. moved on to different people over the years. Uh, Mattel, Hasbro— uh, Toys R Us, and then right now it's owned by Play Along Inc., which it just seems like mm-hmm. those are – seems like there's a lot of toy companies named weird things like that now. I agree. I agree, and I find it unsettling. Like, their slogan should be, we're watching you. <laughs> it just seems like we talk about those a lot. Like, there's still the giants like Hasbro and Mattel, but I feel like when we've done our toy podcast, it seems like the newer ones – they don't have these sort of name brands that you that you think of as toys. No, I know. They all sound like Russian fronts. It's really weird and unsettling and kind of off-putting. And all the Cs are Ks. It's really strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sinister. So, yeah, along the, along the lines, like all of these companies were like, we've got to figure out a way to, to capture lightning in a bottle again um, a second time. That just doesn't happen. It's hard enough the first time. Um, and so they tried different things. Like you said, Coleco tried that talking one. Didn't work. Um, I think Hasbro had one that swam, which is kind of impressive. Sure. Um, and then Mattel had one that they had to withdraw. It was called um, Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kids. And they uh, these things would, like, eat. Like, they came with, like, French fries or something. And you'd put, like, the French fry in their mouth, and they'd start chewing, and it the French fry would go down their throat and actually come out the back of their head and fall into their backpack, and then you could feed it to them again, <laughs> which is great and fine. But if you're a little kid and you get your fingers in there, your hair in there, that Cabbage Patch doll is just going to keep eating and eating, and you're going to start screaming, and your parents are going to be like, I don't want this doll anymore. Give me my money back. Yeah, and these things also declined in quality. Um, think of the mid-'90s, Mattel shrunk them even more, down to 14 inches, and they were like, forget these cloth bodies even. We're going to make the whole thing vinyl. Uh, and mm-hmm. pe- people didn't like that at all. And it took, I think, the 20th anniversary in 2003, it took Toys R Us, uh, who took over the rights at that point, to um, jack these things back up to 18 inches. Um, they had cloth <laughs> bodies— uh, 
I think they had an 18-inch and a 20-inch, and then they, they finally brought back those cloth bodies, uh, which were a big deal, and they um, debuted them at their flagship store in New York City, and they sort of recaptured the magic a little bit, uh, and it's about this time, and I think a year later is when uh, Play Along uh, licensed it, but it's about this time that people started buying them again a little bit for nostalgia, like kids that grew up with them right. were now buying them for their kids. And I think, you know, they sold okay. It's nothing like they were at first, but they're still around. No. Yeah, and I Play Along Inc., if that is their real name, was very wise to basically recreate the original 1983-style Cabbage Patch Kids. Like, they're basically indistinguishable from the ones that, that the people who are buying them now for their kids yeah. had when they were kids. And it's like you said, it's all nostalgia, and they're they're doing pretty good trade on it with without having to reinvent the wheel. That's right. Uh, a little quick stat before we take a break that is remarkable. Uh, over the past 32 years, there have been 130 million of these babies born, uh, which would if they were real little people, it would make them the 10th most populous country in the world, uh, with <laughs> one being born every 6.8 seconds. Uh, but having said that, we're going to take a little break. And right after this, we are going to tell you the true origin story of the little people. Everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one time fee or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. It's almost here. The NYX anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Okay, Chuck, I'm curious. Why did you say true like that? <laughs> Well, if you listen to the show a year ago, it's already ruined, but uh, 
we didn't go into that much depth. Um, mm-hmm. Here's what really happened, though. Xavier Roberts uh, ripped off a lady. <laughs> That's the easiest <laughs> way to say it. There was a very uh, kind-hearted, soft-spoken folk artist named Martha Nelson Thomas. Went to art mm-hmm. school in the 70s. She experimented with the same exact German soft sculpture uh, molding, and she created what was called Little Doll Babies. If you Google Martha Nelson Thomas Little Dolls, and you see this very fam- now famous picture uh, when it you know hasn't been swept under the rug by Xavier Roberts' people <laughs> and maybe Coleco's people, this black and white picture of this woman surrounded by what are clearly and obviously Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, and there's actually, funny enough, there's another famous uh, picture of Xavier Roberts taken um, probably about 10 years after that, and he's surrounded by straight-up Cabbage Patch Kids, you know, with the vinyl heads and everything. Mm-hmm. But that, that, the fact that that picture was taken of Martha Nelson, Tom, Nelson Thomas in 1975 is photographic documentary evidence that she is the person who came up with Cabbage Patch Kids. Not Cabbage Patch Kids, but what Cabbage Patch Kids were based on. And if that were it, if that were the photo, if that was the only evidence whatsoever, you'd be like, that's a, I don't know, people can have similar ideas, you know. There's only one you know, old German technique called needle molding. Other people could have found it. But that is not the only evidence. And in fact, Xavier Roberts has gone on public record saying that he was inspired by Martha Nelson Thomas, but he changed it enough. But if you go and look at the actual story and the facts along the way, and there's actually a pretty good 16-minute long Vice documentary on this whole thing, (laughs) um, that that you will see that it went way beyond him just being inspired by Martha Nelson Thomas's work. And in fact, like you said, he basically ripped her off. Yeah, so he, um, from what I could tell, and there's a bunch of different sort of versions of this uh, online, but from what I saw is they actually did have an agreement early on that he would sell these for her. Uh, he said, hey, these are great. Can I take some of these to my gift shops and um, sell them for you? And I think I could sell a lot more than you could. And for a little while, they did have an agreement, but uh, as it turns out, he ended up marking them up and charging too much money, and she wasn't happy about that. She was like, no, these shouldn't cost $40. It's, you know, it's 1978, for God's sake, and that's a doll. Uh, and he's like, yeah, but they're— <laughs> What do you think this is, Unicoi State Park? <laughs> they're handmade, and, uh, you know, you should put a value on on your talents. And they had a disagreement about that. And she said, you know what? Forget it. I don't want you to sell these anymore. He follows up with a letter saying, well, you know what? If you don't let me sell your dolls, I'm." he basically said, I'm just going to start making my own. And that's exactly what he did. Supposedly, he wrote her a letter. And I don't remember who mentions it in the Vice documentary. But basically, they said that in the letter, he said, if I can't sell your dolls, I will sell something just like them. And she apparently was like, whatever, and just went her own way. She was satisfied to have her dolls back and probably thought she was done with the matter. And then supposedly one of her friends said, hey, I saw your little doll babies uh, for sale at the Atlanta airport. Way to go. She said, I'm not selling these at the Atlanta airport. And apparently that's when she knew she had a, a big problem on her hands and found out that Xavier Roberts had come up with the little people dolls um, that were just the spinning image of her little doll babies. Yeah, so she um, filed a lawsuit that went on for for years. I think by the time they were selling out in stores in 1983, she was about seven years into this lawsuit. 
And for her, it wasn't, uh, she asked for, I think, a million dollars, but she said it wasn't about the money. She was like, I don't want to see this Mm -hmm. um, as a commodity, and I don't want to be ripped off, and I don't want this guy to come along and basically not have the same respect for these little dolls that I had. And if you look at the court case, you think, you know, open and shut. She's got this picture from 75. They had a prior relationship. She's got this letter uh, that says, where he basically says he's going to rip her off. But she didn't copyright these things. And you would have had to copyright because they were all handmade and they were all, uh, I guess, unique unto themselves. You would have had to copyright and sign or stamp each doll. And she didn't want to do that. And he had no problem doing it. Ours, little Chuck, has an Xavier Roberts hand signature on his butt if you pull down his little corduroy shorts. Yeah, it's one of the famous things about Cabbage Patch Kids, aside from their distinctive faces, is that each one of them has Xavier Roberts' signature stamped onto its butt. And I guess Martha Nelson Thomas was like, there's no place to put a signature on a child, and these are like children to me. That's why I I adopt them out rather than sell them. Um, So I'm not going to sign this. I'm not going to (laughs) copyright them. And that basically, you would think it would have sunk her case. And after um, almost eight years... Um, Xavier Roberts finally said, okay, fine, let's settle this. I suspect it had to do with, um, he sold out at some point in the eighties. He sold his, his portion. And I would guess he probably needed that court case to go away to finalize that sale. And for whatever the reason in 1985, he was suddenly ready to settle and they settled for an undisclosed sum that apparently Martha Nelson Thomas was, was satisfied with. Yeah. And he also said, and hey, lady, you say you can't copyright these things. You can sign it right next to their little butthole. <laughs> right. He sounded cockney there for a second. Cockney? Like, I started to get nervous. Like, oh, my God, why does he sound cockney? And then you pulled it out with the real Appalachian Mountain folk twist at the end there. Yeah. So he uh, he settled. It was enough money to put her kids through college, she said. Uh, it's still sort of a sad story to me that, you know, that, that this— you know, man came along and ripped off this lady's design and then later on mm-hmm. complained that he was getting ripped off. He complained about knockoffs yeah. and said, you know, my point is not not take my product to my creation and tarnish it. Yeah, which was pretty audacious because he said this like, you know, I believe it right when he was settling with this other case in which a part of the settlement was he had to acknowledge that, that he had taken her idea. Um, and <clears throat> to, for him to to be complaining about this on TV, it was a little audacious, especially if you know that you know the full story. But the even though it was a, a open secret or at least even a widely known tale in the toy industry and even some parts of the press, even still today, everybody thinks of Xavier Roberts as the the creator of Cabbage Patch Kids, and technically he was um, because he he came up with Cabbage Patch Kids, and Martha Nelson Thomas came up with um, Little Doll Babies. Yeah, and he sold it to, uh, well, he didn't come up with Cabbage Patch Kids. He sold it to Pac-Man, and Pac-Man named him Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah, I guess so. I hadn't thought about that. So one of the groups he was complaining about was Topps Trading Cards. Topps Trading Cards around the, the still in the height of the um, Cabbage Patch Kid craze in 1985, came out with one of the greatest parodies anyone's ever come out with, the beloved Garbage Pail Kids series. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I wasn't into these. I was a little too old. I yeah, certainly, I, so. I was I was 14. I certainly remember them in uh, the Zeitgeist, and I knew it was a very big mm-hmm. deal. 
But this was probably more for kids probably around your age. I imagine you were probably into these, right? I loved Garbage yeah, Pail Kids. I believe that, that Yumi figures. had a pretty <laughs> impressive Garbage Pail Kid collection herself, too. Oh, really? Yeah. And she actually, yeah, she actually bought me a, um, a couple of Garbage Pail Kids that I have somewhere. Um, I think one is Squash Josh. I can't remember the other one. But they are, for people who don't know what a Garbage Pail Kid is, go look up um, gpk.com, and I think it's like g-e-e-p-e-e-k-a-y.com. I'm not sure. But um, they have every single series scanned. So you can see all 15 series that came out between 1985 and 1988. And they're just awesome. But they're basically like, um, if garbage, if Cabbage Patch Kids were meant to get us used to what mutant offspring of nuclear war survivors would look like, um, Garbage Pail Kids were the mutated version of that. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. They were... Uh, they were deformed, and they were plagued and diseased, and uh, they had names like Atom Bomb and Boney Tony, and I guess Squash Josh <laughs> and uh, yeah, Rumi Yumi. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, they <laughs> they didn't have one. they didn't have names for everyone, but um, it was uh, it was a big deal. They sold a ton of them, and Xavier Roberts was was not happy with this, and I think ended up um, in the lawsuit being successful in getting them just to change enough to where it didn't look like it was officially tied to the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah, like they had the cat, you know, where how it says like on the box for the Cabbage Patch Kid, it's like in a banner, kind of like semicircle banner. They had that originally as Garbage Pail Kids. They had to turn that into a straight bar. They made them look less like lifelike and more like plastic dolls in the later series. There were a few changes, but I mean, it was still pretty clear what the whole thing was a riff off of. But one thing I didn't realize is that one of the um, art directors who helped conceptualize Garbage Pail Kids from the outset was Art Spiegelman, who created Mouse. Yeah. Did you know that? I mean, I've heard of Art Spiegelman, but I really don't know anything about him, so I didn't know that. But I know the name. I've not read Mouse, but I know it's like it's like a like a just a legendary graphic novel um, about fascism. But that guy helped create Garbage Pail Kids just a couple of years before he created Mouse. Amazing! And there was a a bad TV show that eventually only aired in Europe. There was a bad movie uh, that is <laughs> pretty legendarily bad, but um, th- th- it was a big deal though. They sold a ton of them. They didn't quite have the spinoff power of. Uh, no. The CPKs, but the GPKs did okay for themselves. Yeah, I mean, like, that really goes to show you just how big Cabbage Patch Kids were, that it could sustain a cottage industry for a parody, even. That's how big Cabbage Patch Kids were in the yeah. 80s. So hats off to Cabbage Patch Kids. I can't wait to talk about them again next year in another episode. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll spend 2021 figuring out how to do that, Chuck. And in the meantime, everybody, since we're thinking about how to talk about Cabbage Patch Kids some more, it's time for listener mail. Uh, that's right. Before we do listener mail real quick, I just want to give a shout out to the Budge family. Uh, not really going to get into what's going on with them, but just want them to know that uh, we're thinking about them and sending them lots of love and support over the internet airwaves. Uh, But this email is called, uh, oh, I know, I'm going to call it The Beave. Uh, This is is about beavers again. 
And mm-hmm. it starts out as, this is seriously not a please read me on the air email. And that's a pretty good way to get on the air, by the way. Uh, thanks for the amazing show. Sure. <laughs> Been a listener uh, since they were paltry 20 minutes. Love everyone. You keep me company while walking, driving, cleaning, cooking, and providing an endless source of interesting topics for my English students in Spain. Uh, I kind of think Chuck is my podcast soulmate as we grow up in much the same circumstances around the same age. We have a very similar cultural outlook on different things. Uh, I do have a small difference of opinion, though. Your Bigfoot podcast was great. Uh, and I was happy to hear you say the possibility exists. Did we say that? <laughs> I guess yeah, we did. I think we were. I, I don't know if it was we so much as you. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, but a while back, you I'm were. I'm just teasing. I think it was we. <laughs> you were adamant that Nessie does not exist. Buddy, show Nessie some love. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if she did exist? Uh, so she has her fingers crossed on that. But the real reason she wrote in is she listened to the Beaver episode and came across uh, Beave the Beaver. So just get online and Google Beave. It was this beaver that was found, um, I think, abandoned by its parents and then adopted as a young baby and then raised for a while to eventually be uh, put maybe a wildlife center or something. But the long and short of it is Beave makes uh, dams <laughs> in their house. So there are yeah, all these pretty cute. videos of Beave dragging stuff uh, into this one specific doorway that Beave is trying to dam up and like dragging a, a shoe rack, uh, pillows, um, tissue boxes, like anything Beave mm-hmm. can get a hold of in his little paws and teeth, he'll drag over to this doorway and try and dam up. And it's really one of the, the cutest, funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah, it is very cute because he looks like should this go here or maybe a little bit to the left? Okay, that's all right right there. Or like when he brought the pillow over, he's like, oh, this is very useful. I can just squish this into place. It was very cute to watch him do that. It is amazing. And that email, by the way, is from Carrie Keeley. Thanks, Carrie. That was a great email. And yes, way to get it on the air by saying it's not meant to be on the air. Um, We fall for stuff like that all the time. And if you want to try to make us fall for something, have at us. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.